During the last week of August 2005, life seemed pretty normal for most people in the United States South. School had started in many places, with children and teachers settling back into routines. Those who still had vacation time were enjoying the beach and sunshine and tropical drinks and seafood. But suddenly, with the collision of a tropical wave and a tropical depression off the east coast of Florida, everything changed for thousands and thousands of people. The storm that started southeast of Florida changed over just a few days into Hurricane Katrina, the fourth most intense Atlantic hurricane to make landfall in the United States. It struck land multiple times, with the hardest hit coming over southeastern Louisiana and Mississippi. What happened next was devastation on a scale we could not have imagined. More than 1,800 people were killed, and the hurricane did more than $145 billion in damage. But what shocked and appalled us most were the human tragedies, especially in and around New Orleans. The Superdome became a shelter of last resort for people without the resources to evacuate. But during the storm, part of the Superdome's roof, roof ripped off, causing flooding inside. The electrical supply failed, cutting off air conditioning and refrigeration for the food stored there. The toilets stopped working and the smell was horrible. It was not until three days later that FEMA evacuated around 50,000 people from the Superdome and the New Orleans Convention Center to shelters in Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio. We all watched in horror as the news reporters shared glimpses of the chaos in New Orleans. But what we didn't see at the time were the many ways people helped each other in the face of this massive disaster. Former Marine Platoon Commander Elliot Ackerman tells a story of being deployed to a suburb of New Orleans shortly after Katrina to help with disaster relief. One day, he and his platoon learned from a gas station attendant that an elderly couple down the road with nowhere else to go was sheltering in their house even though a tree had fallen through the roof and it was still raining. The platoon checked out the house and quickly realized they would need chainsaws to remove the tree, not something the Marines had supplied for this mission. They drove to a nearby Lowe's where the store manager loaned them four chainsaws and some extra ladders with the instruction to bring them back not too broken. By that night, the Marines had cut up and removed the tree, but had broken one of the chainsaws. The manager shrugged and gave them an in invoice for several hundred dollars, saying, see what you can do. The platoon stayed in New Orleans for about a month. When they returned to Camp Lejeune, the commander walked into his office and found an envelope on his desk. The Marines in the platoon knew the Marine Corps would not foot the bill. So they took up a collection to cover the cost of the broken chainsaw. And in that envelope was just enough to pay the invoice. The theme of just enough is an important part of today's scripture from Exodus. Two weeks ago, I shared God's instructions for the Passover. Eat quickly, dressed and ready to go, because the time to escape Egypt is coming soon. This story takes place about six weeks later. 
When God passed through Egypt, killing all the male babies, Pharaoh finally relented and released the Israelite prisoners. They escaped from Egypt across the Reed Sea, also called the Red Sea, after God commanded Moses to stretch out his hand and part the waters so they could cross. And they fled into the wilderness, headed toward the land of Canaan, where their ancestors had lived so many generations before. Life in the wilderness was rough. The land was dry and barren, and moving a whole congregation through such rough terrain required careful planning. They needed to stick to routes close to water and to carry enough food to feed everyone. Things probably worked out fine at first, but by the time today's scripture started, the Israelites were hungry and anxious. Food was running out quickly, and there was nothing they could kill or gather in the barren desert where they were. They knew they were likely to starve to death soon, and their hunger was so potent and their anxiety so great that they were willing to make a poor trade, to go back to the bondage and abuse of slavery in order to have enough food. They grumbled to Moses and his brother Aaron about how Egypt was better, because at least they had bread and meat. And they complained loudly enough that God heard them. And God responded in a way many of us would not expect. God did not get angry or berate them or call them ungrateful or remind them of everything God had done to help free them from Egypt. Instead, God showed up for them in an envelope of light that kept the people from seeing God's self, but allowed them to know that God was with them, the glory of God. And God provided the food they needed. That night and every night, the camp where they were staying was covered with quail, enough birds so everyone in the Israelite congregation had an abundance of meat to eat. And the next morning when the dew lifted, the ground was blanketed with a fine flaky substance that looked kind of like frost. The Israelites didn't know what it was, but Moses explained it was bread from God. It didn't look like any bread they'd seen before. They called it manna, meaning roughly in Hebrew, what is it? And its taste was delicious, like coriander and honey. God provided enough meat and bread to feed the Israelites. But this manna, this bread from God, was not like ordinary bread. God instructed the Israelites, through Moses and Aaron, to go out and gather enough to feed their family that day. They were to eat what they collected that day and not to store any of it. Of course, some people didn't listen to God's instructions. Whether they were feeling anxious about having enough to eat tomorrow, or greedy because they saw so much free food around them, they collected extra with a plan to store it to eat later. But when they went to eat the stored manna the next day, they discovered it had bred worms, turned sour, and melted. Trying to hoard the manna was useless, so they began to follow God's instruction and gather only what they needed for their family for that day. And when people of different strength and ability harvested manna, everybody still ended up with exactly the amount they needed. Day after day, God provided just enough for everyone. But then came the Sabbath, 
The day God proclaimed was for sacred rest. How could they feed themselves if they couldn't work to gather manna on the Sabbath? Again, God provided. On the morning before the Sabbath, they were instructed to gather twice as much manna to have enough for both days. I'm sure some of the Israelites were skeptical. They'd seen what happened when they tried to hoard the manna overnight. But miraculously, the manna they gathered to eat on the Sabbath did not go bad and was still edible the next day. Once again, God provided just enough for everyone. The story of manna from God is a memorable one and a powerful affirmation for the people of Israel. And there are echoes of this story in some familiar New Testament passages as well. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus said, It is my Father who gives you bread from heaven. During his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught those gathered the prayer we call the Lord's Prayer that we said this morning, which includes the request, Give us this day our daily bread. And in the well-known miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus blessed and broke two small loaves of bread, and suddenly there was enough bread to feed everyone. It's also important to realize that God's provision of manna was never intended to be free bread for all of life. God provided this special food only while the Israelites were in the wilderness, a place where they did not have resources available to feed themselves. God's manna was intended to help the Israelites through this uncertain, anxious, in-between time. And God continued to provide, day after day, for the more than 40 years they spent in the wilderness, until they reached a place where they could grow and eat food from the land. And according to the book of Joshua, starting on the first day the Israelites ate produce they grew, manna no longer appeared. God knew what was needed and for how long, and God provided just enough. But there's another aspect of this story that matters, the theme of community. The ancient Israelites lived in a collective economy. Everyone in the household worked together to ensure the long-term survival of the whole family. And each family was morally obligated to ensure that even the most vulnerable families in their community had what they needed to survive. We see this support for vulnerable families in the Old Testament practice of gleaning. Families who grew crops were expected to leave a portion behind when they harvested, so families who were poor could come behind them and glean the leftovers to feed their families. We see this in God's instructions for the Passover feast. Each family was to have a lamb, but if the family was not large enough, they should share a lamb with another family so everyone was fed. And in the same way, families had a responsibility to provide hospitality to travelers. Remember, Jesus instructed his disciples not to take anything with them when they traveled to other places to preach, but to stay with families there. And likewise, families had a responsibility to care for immigrants who arrived in their land after fleeing economic hardship, war, or natural disasters. The Israelites believed that they were stronger together, that when they shared, they succeeded, and that they thrived in community. We live in a modern world that focuses more on individuality. Some of the first words toddlers learn are me and mine. 
In academia, professors are, ju are judged on the uniqueness of their scholarship. We celebrate individual accomplishments through awards and promotions and social media fame. We grow up hearing the myth of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, the idea that you should succeed because of your efforts without help from anyone else. Did you know that phrase was originally meant sarcastically to refer to something that is impossible? Think about it. It is impo physically impossible to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps or belt or hair or any other part of your body. Until about the 1920s, people understood that pulling yourself up by your bootstraps meant trying to do something absurd. But today, we use it as a compliment or an aspiration. And yet the story of the Israelites receiving God's manna is a story not only of having enough, but of helping each other as a community. People of different abilities gathered different amounts of manna, and yet the amount they gathered was enough for everyone. God provided enough, and everyone worked together to ensure that everyone was fed. Working together and taking care of the needs of others can be challenging. At Cairo camp one year, many years ago, we practiced caring for each other through a hilarious but effective exercise. At dinner one night, everyone received a fork on a long, long handle. Far too long to get food into your own mouth. It didn't take long to realize that everyone needed to use the fork to feed the person across the table from them and to rely on that person to feed them. And by working together, everyone was fed. God calls us all to care for each other, to feed each other, until everyone has just enough. But there's also a small danger in this story of God's grace and generosity. It might be tempting to just sit around waiting for God to provide what we need without doing anything ourselves. After all, God provided manna for the Israelites, even though they still had to gather it. For those tempted to try waiting, waiting on God to do everything, here's a modern-day parable you've probably heard before. A storm descends on a small town, and the downpour suddenly turns into a flood. As the waters rise, the local preacher kneels in prayer on the church porch, surrounded by water. By and by, one of the townsfolk come, comes up on the street in a canoe. Better get in, preacher. The waters are rising fast. No, says the preacher, I have faith in the Lord. He will save me. Still the waters rise. Now the preacher is up on the balcony, wringing his hands in supplication, when another guy zips by in a motorboat. Come on, preacher, we need to get you out of here. The levee's going to break any minute. Once again, the preacher is unmoved. I shall remain. The Lord will see me through. After a while, the levee breaks and the flood rushes over the church until only the steeple remains above the water. The preacher is up there clinging to the cross when a helicopter descends out of the clouds and a state trooper calls down to him through a megaphone, grab the ladder, preacher, this is your last chance. Once again, the preacher insists the Lord will deliver him and predictably, he drowns. A pious man, the preacher goes to heaven after a while, he gets an interview with God, and he asks the Almighty, Lord, I had unwavering faith in you. Why didn't you deliver me from that flood? God shakes his head. What did you want from me? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. 
God provides for us, just as God provided for the people of Israel in the desert. I've never liked the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, because it implies that God does not care for or help those who don't have the ability to contribute. We all know that's not true. We've heard stories of miraculous cures of sick people that the medical community did not believe would survive. And, God, and yet God expects us to play a part in caring for and providing for each other. Many of God's small but significant provisions happen through other people. The friend who shows up just to sit with you when you're struggling with difficult news. The church that hands out bottles of water on a hot day or coffee on a cold one. There's a nonprofit movement called Lasagna Love that connects people through lasagna. People who want to help out sign up to provide a lasagna to someone in their community, and people in need of a little extra support and kindness sign up to receive one. The giver delivers the lasagna, no questions asked, and the receiver has a hot homemade meal to enjoy. These small gestures may not seem like much, but they can be valuable and even life-saving glimpses of God's grace for someone who's struggling. Sometimes we hesitate to help because we're not sure if others are truly in need or truly deserve our help. But perhaps it's not our job to judge that. What would happen in our church and in our world if we assumed God wants everyone to have just enough? How might it affect how we interact with others? How might it change how we spend money individually and as a congregation? How might it influence how we make decisions as people of God? God provides enough. It's okay to let go of hoarding things just in case we might need them someday. It's okay to let go of jealousy over what others have. It's okay to let go of anxiety and fear. And it's okay to turn our attention to feeding our neighbor without worrying about whether their needs are real or not. Songwriter and motivational speaker Janice Stanfield reminds all of us, I cannot do all the good that the world needs, but the world needs all of the good that I can do. May we do all the good we can to help ensure that others have just enough. Amen.